opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to Main Menu for Friday, April 13th, 2018. I am one of your co-hosts. This is Randy Resnack speaking. Today, we talk all about low vision with our guests, Joe Steinkamp and Shelley Brisbane. And now to start off the show, here is Janine Stanley. Everyone, this is Janine Stanley, and today we're bringing you a really special show for all of our listeners who have low vision issues, who may not be totally blind or may have enough vision to be using that vision with different adaptive devices. And we have some really special guests today. But first of all, I am joined by my co-host Jason Castingway. Hey there. And the big R himself, Randy Resnack. Hello, everybody. And we have again with us Mr. Joe Steinkamp, and we have with us another very special guest, Ms. Shelley Brisbane, who many of us know from her lovely iOS book, but also she is going to talk about low vision today. Let's talk a little bit about kind of our experiences with low vision. I'm going to do host privilege here and start out. I grew up legally blind, but always had a fair amount of central vision, right around 2200, 2300, somewhere in there. And Joe will empathize with this one. I had the lovely Visual Tech Apollo back yes, in the day. Yes, the Apollo Laser. Is, yes. One that had the, the audacity to say portable on it when it was. Uh, yes, too. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I also used a handheld magnifier. It was actually a jeweler's magnifier, I think, and it was a 10X. And I lived by that thing. That was my eye. <laughs> and uh, so, well, that's my familiarity with the whole low vision world. And I lost my vision just as some of the newer closed circuit TVs with the XY tables and the split screens and things like that were coming on board. I'm so glad I didn't get to see the color ones because I'd be pining still for those things. But um, so some amazing things have happened. Joe, tell us a little bit about your experiences with low vision over the years. I'm lucky I had the XY table for the Apollo laser and it made uh, little mouse noises ee, 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 every time you moved it. It was really loud. <laughs> lots of WD-40. Um, I grew up with low vision. I'm uh, congenital glaucoma, cataracts at birth, uh, cataracts were removed. I lost my right eye when I was very young. Don't have memory of that. And I'm what's called a floater because I've had a retinal tear. So I could be 2200 one moment and 2800 by a couple hours later. It just varies uh, from time to time. So I, I identify in public as being blind because it's just easier than playing 64 questions of, hey, what do you see? Can you see shapes? Can you see colors? My first video magnifier that I ever saw was in the late 70s. And while I was at the lighthouse, I kind of moved off into one of the reading rooms that Janine was talking about. And I saw my first round-eyed visual tech. That's right, the original one with a blue screen. And it looked Ooh. like an eye. And it was very, very strange. But I fell in love. It was just like, wow, this is a calling to me. Because I, I you know, didn't have to use 
an Eschenbach magnifier to read things. I could put them under the screen. And of course, with glaucoma, I was attracted to the brightest light source in the room, and this television was just speaking to me. So I later went from that to the Opticon and then over to the Apollo laser and then other video magnifiers as I got older. And then, of course, used things like Vista and Vert and Zoom Text for DOS uh, and a whole number of things that, that uh, I now speak of very fondly. So <laughs> my vision uh, changes constantly, but I still use things like um, I use voiceover on iPhone or TalkBack, but I don't use screen magnification on those devices because I just find that it's uh, for me and my vision, it would cause more problems than it would solve. So I use speech in those areas. But it's allowed me to be a good dual or hybrid user. And what I mean by that is someone who has to use or can use screen magnifiers and screen readers equally. So Shelly, tell us a little bit about your low vision experience. So I have a blockage of the optic nerve and the impact of that is that I've always been nearsighted. I've been able to read large print. Interestingly though, when I went to the school for the blind back in the day, they immediately put braille in front of me and I had learned to read at home reading magazines with large headlines. And so I was really offended. But when you're six years old and they give you braille books, you just, you know, <laughs> you do what you do. So I Fought, not only was I trying to fight my way out of the school for the blind and into a mainstream situation, I was fighting, trying to fight my way back to large print. And I, I learned Braille, and I'm so glad I did because it's a skill I've continued to use. And um, but I also knew that I could could function as a as a print reader, and so I sort of was bifurcated in that way. And then I would use Braille for school books. I did find back in the days when there wasn't so much audio material available that when I was reading for schoolwork and was a lot of reading, that I found it easier to read Braille than to read large print at a long, at a lar- at a, for, for a long, long time. And I think I only re- realized that in retrospect because at the time I was always fighting to get print in my hand and I always had books at home, pr- printed books. And I use little handheld magnifiers too. And I, like, like you, Janine, I just, th- those were my lifeline. And, uh, you know, 6, 7X, 10X, I had, I had little handheld ones. Some of them were just uh, round lenses in frames. And I had one, I don't know why I had this one. It, it, it kind of worked when I would, would bend my head over some text that was flat on a table, but I had a little round magnifier that was on a little stand that was like a two-inch stand or something. Oh, yes. And I kept breaking those little stands. Yes. Uh, those are technically called dome magnifiers. So they have a little dome on them and that's how you set them there. But uh, Yeah, and, it, and I would, but the thing that was weird that I continued to do because I just insisted on doing it was I would read, I loved to read as a kid and I would lie on my couch uh, reading paperback books and I would cram that little magnifier into the book and I'm lying on my back trying to read. It was the most yes. ridiculous thing ever. And I would destroy book spines just because I had to have room for the magnifier. And over the years, I have bought magnifiers from low vision sources, but also just from, uh, there's a place in, in Austin where I live called Miller Blueprints. And they used to sell these little handheld, these little magnifiers that you could easily hold in one hand. They had lights. I never used the lights because I'm, I'm the reverse of Joe. The darker, the better. And I'll get to that in a second. But you could hold these things in one hand and they had little tiny lenses that were square and that would fit over one eye. And oh, after a while, yes. that got to be the best way to read when I finally found one that was powerful enough. When I finally found a 10X. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. And so it was not, it was enough of a field, but not too much. And there were still like, 
I, I, when I would buy it, when I would go to buy a print book, I would op- I got smart enough to open it up and look and say, how small is this print? Am I going to be able to read this comfortably <laughs> or not? And then I, technology-wise, I, when I was at School for the Blind, they had a visual tech, and I would use it intermittently because it was in the library. It wasn't mine to use all the time, and so I was... I probably didn't get as much out of it as I could. I enjoyed using it. I would, interestingly enough, I found that it was going, it was more useful to me once I got into a non-low vision friendly setting. In other words, in a mainstream world, I was working in journalism and publishing and stuff and you needed to see stuff close up. And I had a job once where they actually bought me a uh, CCTV. I don't remember what brand it was. It was the early 90s. The funny thing about it was, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but the hilarious thing about it was it was a separate TV and camera apparatus, but the TV was in this really industrial strength box. It looked like something for the army. or It was just this huge, <laughs> it was like the TV was inside of a milk crate and made it super heavy. And I was like, I don't know why. It's, I'm in a cubicle. I'm not going to drop this thing. Anyway, so as a kid, I mean, uh, I grew up in the, the, the 70s, and so there weren't you know, computers that would allow me to, or even handhelds, really, other than, than just the, the ones I talked about already, you know, the, there weren't any really electronic magnifiers. And so I was just sort of doing a hit and miss bit, you know, some braille, some print. When I got into college, it became more possible to get uh, audiobooks, whether they were via Recording for the Blind, Now Learning Ally, or other sources. There were textbooks that I could get. And I was, became instantly a fan of audio reading. I still do that today a great deal. I can consume and understand and comprehend a lot via audio, and it's kind of my preference. Mm -hmm. And I am also, I'm very sensitive, I'm photophobic, and the consequence of that from a reading point of view is that when I have a screen, I always want to invert the colors. So I want a dark background and light text. And as I say, I'm the reverse of Joe in that I turn my screens down to the lowest brightness level possible. And my, my mother has uh, age-related macular degeneration, and uh, she has an iPad that I gave to her. And so it's hilarious because when I come to fix the iPad, the first thing I do is invert the colors. <laughs> and the second thing I do is turn it way down. And then as I'm getting up, she reminds me, okay, could you fix that so that I could see it again? <laughs> 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 and I guess the last yeah. thing I would just say is, um, so I, I use magnification in mobile devices sparingly. I have Zoom available to me, but I'm not always using it. I like the, uh, the, the triple taps that'll get me into Zoom for a specific instance, but I, I tend not to use it. But I, I use reverse video both on computers and in, in mobile devices. And then I like the ability to have what I call spot Zoom available to me. So that's kind of my, my interaction. And I am using mostly mainstream devices. I still have little handheld magnifiers. It's funny because they're lying around my house. Mm -hmm. I have one uh, near my television. I have one in my office. I have one in a chair where I sit for for pleasure reading and, you know, these little little $10 magnifiers that some are a little more expensive than that. I have a nice Eschenbach one and I always carry one with me. I always want one nearby even though I have, you know, the phone and all this other technology. I'm still a big fan of those little handheld magnifiers. (laughs) Now, did either one of you ever use a monocular for distance kind of? Yes, I have one. I use it every day. Ah, 7X. Still still Uh, have mine over here. I still use mine. You know, there are actually electronic versions of that now. There's the uh, Mojo from Enhanced Vision, which is trying to provide that kind of experience, but on a video magnifier that you would hold up to one eye for $1,500. 
Um, but I guess in retrospect, that's actually not too far away from what some of the higher end uh, monoculars cost. I was just going to say mine was over a thousand and that was back in the early eighties. So yeah. <laughs> I think I paid, uh, well, when I finally found one I liked because I would occasionally lose them. And in fact, famously, I was at a Macworld Expo in San Francisco once and that, and it was, you know, when you're in a big city, I, I needed a monocular. And yep. so I, I lost one at the expo. And I got myself into a cab. I found a store where I knew I could buy one. It was a camera telescope kind of store. And I bought this Zeiss 10X that's, monocular. That's the one I had. It's so great. And I, <laughs> I bought one. And then when I got home, my, my husband, who is, is both practical and spendy, he likes to spend money. Uh, he says, you know what you should do next? You should buy two. You should have one always in your drawer at home. And you should have all, always one with you so that you're never in a situation. Because those are hard to find. Yes. I mean, that was before Amazon. You couldn't exactly just say, I'd like this one in this color. And as far as the video mag version, I, I use the Mojo a little bit, only in an exhibit poor context, but my feeling, and I, I haven't really proved it out, but my feeling is that especially because I wear sunglasses when I'm out of doors and I, I'm photophobic, my feeling is that there probably would be too much light in an electronic magnifier situation for me to use it effectively on one eye. Now, uh, some of the products we're going to talk about a little later might have some potential because they're not just monoculars, but uh, I like a monocular that I can put right up against my sunglasses and it has the little rubber eyepiece thing that yeah. I fold down so that it'll fit on the sunglasses. <laughs> I go to town and that's that, that and a hat that I wear to keep some light out from the top of my head and the sunglasses. That's like my uniform. Everywhere I go, I got to have that stuff. So I have to ask Randy, you have been a rehabilitation counselor. You've been a technology person all these years. Tell me a little bit about what you've experienced with low vision with either yourself or people that you work with. First thing that I try and do is learn the device as much as I can. And being that I'm a totally blind person, I sometimes, well, let me, let me just give you an example. I, I do the best I can, but sometimes things just don't work out right. An example was I was showing someone a magnifier and it was being projected to a whole group of people. And Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I said, "What? Do, so, what do you? What, this is how you work the device." And I, I pointed it, and uh, it went just perfectly up someone's nose. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> <laughs> and there was a whole bunch of tittering and laughing and everything. And I thought, "Well, what the hell are they laughing about?" I thought I was doing a pretty good job. Well, I didn't find out about it till we were in a big staff meeting, and somebody told me about it and uh, we all laughed and had a good time with it so sometimes it sometimes it's impossible so i do the best i can with you know how i learn devices and sometimes i learn them just on the fly and then then it's like okay well now show them to the students or whatever now the staff members i hate to say uh, i'm retired by the way i only come in for special cases now what end ended up happening i try to show it to staff people and unfortunately where I work the staff are just totally they it's like they talk in the middle of my presentations mm -hmm. and so they don't learn and so it's up to me to show individual student class uh, participants which really you know works out really pretty well because what they end up doing is putting their hands on the device and you know turning the knobs and throwing the switches and and you know gaining access to it so uh, usually they teach themselves, but uh, you know I give them basic the basic uh, uh, formulas on how they work, and they can pretty much do what they want. And this goes from 
especially young uh, kids, you know, that are in their late teens and early 20s on up through people that are, you know, in their mid to late 80s who really want to have something that's, that's either needs to be proven or that has already been proved. I had a guy I worked with once who were, uh, worked in the chemical plants in Pasadena and he had had chemicals fall into his eyes and mm-hmm. we had him at the evaluation center and we had several desktop units and I worked with him for about four hours to try everything because he was an engineer. He wanted to try everything. So <laughs> uh, we played around with things and we tried this and we tried various lighting conditions and it, he found that he could look at a Merlin CCTV by enhanced vision. And he found that if he set the colors to uh, violet on a black background, so the foreground oh, wow. was, was like violet text on a black background. And if he stood up and tilted his head, looked down at the screen at a 35 degree angle, he could refine. I sat I'm there squinting just hearing that. <laughs> I sat there and watched him read a newspaper article at almost normal size text. But if he tried to read any other way because of the scarring, he had kaleidoscopic vision. And so we had a big conversation about that. He was thrilled to have found something. But then we talked about, okay, it's good that you know that this exists. This is an option. But how are you going to incorporate this in real life? How are you going to do this? How are you going to to use this technology and be efficient with it? And that that was a long conversation. He eventually chose a different unit because it it allowed him to be a little bit more efficient and also was portable but it it gave him peace and solace to know that that was there just sometimes seeing the big e on the eye chart is enough for people but also sometimes it can be very much an inhibitor because then they might be fighting the technology it's not a good fit i feel for randy in that situation you never know what you're going to walk into when you go to do an evaluation you know you talk with somebody uh, it was neat to find the things that fit but you always have to have some reality involved in how you're going to approach your technology and have some acceptance not just in who you are but what the technology is well actually jason let me throw this over to you tell us a little bit about your low vision experiences if you have any I don't have any, and I was going to make a joke out of it and say that the only low vision I have experienced that I have is no vision. So. <laughs> That's about as low as you can get, right? Hey. Yeah. <laughs> I have light perception. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk CSUN. You guys have been to a number of the CSUN conferences over the years. How has the world of low vision changed? I guess that's maybe an ending question, but we'll use it as a kind of a beginning question. Then we'll go into what you saw this year that was cool and interesting. No, no, I think it's really relevant. It may feel like an ending question, but really it's the ending of the beginning of what we used to know about the assistive technology industry. And what I mean by that is we're seeing consolidation and contraction, not just in services with vocational rehabilitation and education, but we're now seeing that in the technology sector as well. So Companies that were independent are now owned by uh, a larger company. Others are going through some heavy transition as the technology becomes more mobile and more portable or more off the shelf. And then there were some mainstream companies there this year, which was really nice to see that Shelly and I were really thrilled to note when we walked in was, you know, there was a great big presence of Google and Amazon and Sony and, you know, more of the big names in mainstream technology are now present at the convention where before it, it could have felt like a used car salesman 
<laughs> lot, you know, like 10 years ago, even where you, you might have felt just a little sleazy, just a little hard <laughs> no. time. Because it was more mom and pop. It was more mm-hmm. uh, people cobbling together things to make something work. It was uh, a little bit more of the uh, roll up your you know sleeves and get in there and make some access work. That's not the case anymore. It feels way more corporate, way more directly designed and way more market buzzworthy hashtag Bitcoin <laughs> all the other you know crazy words you, you would hear in a press release uh, and that's kind of weird for those of us who've been doing it for a while to hear is to hear that change in tone I feel like the it's interesting because we spent a lot of time in the exhibit hall or nearby talking to people as vendors talking to companies as vendors I should say there's a whole other part of the conference obviously where there's a lot of presentations where some of those vendors are going out there either selling their wares or trying to describe accessibility from uh, their point of view. And I, I guess if I take the broader view, it, it feels like that corporatization has actually kind of been there a while. And what, what felt different this year, maybe with the mainstream companies, is that they actually felt a little more comfortable and like we're, we're a little more, we're a little closer to family now, not in the mom and pop sense, but in the sense of we've done this before, we're going to be here, you can rely on us to be here, we're going to have new stuff every year, some of it's going to be exciting, some of it's going to be marketing. But both Google and Microsoft not only had presences in the exhibit hall and suites that they paid for for the entire week, but they also bragged on how many people each company brought. Microsoft had 80 people, I don't know how many people were in that giant Google picture I saw, but it could have been that many as well. It was, And so it's astonishing, if you think about you know, those are people whose main function in that company is accessibility. And, you know, I I don't want to be too starry-eyed about it, but the fact that not only do they have those people, but they brought them to CSUN to do stuff. They're not just coming there to be in a picture. It feels like it's more integrated into both what we're doing in accessible technology and what they're doing. There's a function within those mainstream companies that is more mature and sophisticated as far as accessibility. And then our challenge is, how do we uh, meet them where they are and say, okay, well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to step up to the plate, and frankly, if you're going to take credit for that accessibility, then we're going to have some requests and we're going to you know, want to sit at the table with you. And to, to a great extent, they seem to be good about that. And I know that there are you know, big and little ways where that happens. It feels like a more mature thing rather than something that's just happening for the first time. And kind of stepping back away from the exhibit hall, like Shelley was talking about, Many of the presentations that are there are used as marketing pitches. A lot of people will put their entire budget into going to CSUN in order to network, in order to meet other people, or to provide a paper, which they're going you know, to then tour on for the rest of the year. So it's like, I'm going to release my album. Now I'm going to go across the country <laughs> with my t-shirts. Here I go. Let's talk what you saw this year. And we'll start out with hardware. What hardware, what's new and different? We'll start with that. And then what's been improved upon? Well, uh, especially since we're talking uh, low vision, I think the, the, the thing that you, you have to be uh, have to talk about is the amount of the number of products that people were putting on their heads, uh, wearables, whether they be glasses type devices with cameras or whether they be VR headsets that have been outfitted with some technology. I guess you could even uh, reach out and grab watches there, you know, they're uh, as, as a part of that category. But really in terms of what's new, I mean, there are plenty of 
products that have been iterated or products that have been promised that are finally coming closer to market on the Braille side of the world. But those are more known quantities. And I felt, I was, I was surprised not that wearables was a thing, but that there were so many different iterations of it. And it's, what, it's, it's, it's the thing that Joe talks about a lot, about the commoditization of accessibility products. And it seems like the accessibility companies, whether it's the fact that there are just more commodity type technology products available or whether that they're just better at adapting them. It seems like they're more quickly turning mainstream hardware into accessibility specific products, which means they, they iterate somewhat faster. And, and so I thought that was really fascinating. A lot of the stuff we saw isn't shipping. A lot of the stuff that is shipping, uh, I looked at it and I went, you're going to need a version 2.0 of this. But <laughs> that's not a bad thing unless you're the first person to have to plunk down $5,000 for a pair of glasses. <laughs> Yeah. Or, or or the version two where you can turn in that uh, version one and then pay a right. nominal upgrade fee in order to $3, have three thousand dollars. That's what I was wondering if anybody was offering that kind of thing anymore. Oh yes, Orchem uh, yeah. was one of the uh, products that we spoke to, uh-huh. and uh, they mentioned their version two. And then we asked the question, okay, well, what if I have a version one? Is there a uh, upgrade? They go, sure, send in the other one and pay three grand, and uh, you there you go. Oh. Uh, where you figured that forty five hundred is the list price for a brand new one. So yeah, there is an upgrade path, and that's that is weird to consider for for those of us who've been using video magnification for a long time. <laughs> idea of upgrading your video magnifier is still kind of a new concept and very strange and very you know weird or to consider that hardware companies you know they would just retire something they wouldn't necessarily come out with a 2.0 they would just say this is it and we're going to sell this for like five to seven years that, mm-hmm. that isn't the case anymore so um the topaz that shipped from freedom scientific 10 years ago has very little in common with the Topaz that ships now with OCR on board. And that's another thing that we started to see is that the standalone OCR is kind of dead in those kinds of devices. And then Freedom had the SARA, the scanning and reading appliance. Um, A lot of that technology has just worked its way into video magnifiers. And that kind of started with a clear reader with Optilec and then showed in other places. And that's kind of where that technology is going because so many of us, you know, don't really use open book or Kurzweil anymore. We use our phones or we use canopy reader through windows or some other way of doing things or even OCR within your screen reader. So, you know, that technology is being moved into other devices. And for low vision people, like Shelly was talking about earlier with, you know, allowing things to speak to her for long reading, it seems like a really good fit. And from both a technological and a marketing point of view, that makes sense. Because from a technological point of view, it's on software. You have a video magnifier, which is basically a computer with a camera in it. Hey, it's like a phone. Uh, And so you put some software in it that does OCR, and you can continue to use whatever commodity product is available for you for the camera, and then add and update the software as you need. And as far as the competitive bit, all those companies know that people have phones and that blind people and low vision people have really taken particularly to the iPhone, but to, to any smartphone and are doing things with them and with apps like KNFB Reader. And they know that 
the differentiator for the product. And, and I talked to, to VFO about the, the newest Optelec Compact 6, where they're really focusing on the OCR. I even tried to get the guy I talked to to sort of give me a little description of, you know, what's, what's the product like? We're not even talking about color schemes anymore, levels of magnification, unless I ask. It's like, what differentiates this product is that it'll do OCR and it'll do it in a way that is uh, friendly to the needs of low vision people. It'll do full page OCR in a six inch magnifier. Wow. And that is both technologically and competitively driven. It's just a matter of th- that technology exists. You wouldn't sell a video magnifier that didn't have a certain number of color schemes. Right. There's a range of magnification that you can expect from a handheld or a desktop, and that's controlled by the camera to a great extent. And they're all buying from a small list of cameras. And the more technology miniaturizes and the more people are able to go out in the market and say, I need a camera that's at least this quality and that has this, you know, price component to it. Mm-hmm. If you, if you, they won't always tell you what's in their devices, but if you, if you took them apart, if you did an eye fix it on some of, <laughs> on a lot of the low vision magnification products, you'd find that a lot of them are using the same or very similar actual components. Share your wisdom about these cameras because well, we I find coming, this really intriguing. Really talking about with separating your product from the herd. A lot of times that can be durability portability, so size, weight, battery life, removable battery. That used to be something we used to see a lot. Now, not as much. So there are people who will tout very much their ability to collapse their unit or mm-hmm. that it comes with a very nice case, which sounds kind of trivial, but oh my gosh, not paying for an aftermarket case is really cool. Uh, yeah, um, and and not having it in Kelly Green. Well, well <laughs> Can't, can't help that. We can't get away from the early Braille notes. Sorry. That's Ed. right. <laughs> That's out right. There. Style um, does matter, folks. It, it truly does. But uh, there are some things that you will notice with the feel of an XY table. Um, some of them feel like they are made of industrial grade Sherman tank steel. Others feel like you need to burp them like the Tupperware that they're made out of before mm-hmm. you use them. There was a trend for a while for XY tables to have storage inside them. Like you would lift the table and you could put your pens and you know little notes and stuff in there. I don't see that nearly as much anymore. Oh, thank and goodness. Something that I've also noticed, and, and this comes and goes, but it seems to be back in style, is that when you go to lock the tray, it locks it in all directions rather than having individual abilities to ah. lock vertical or horizontal um, that used to be something that you used to see in a lot of humanware units, and now you kind of don't. In the cases of like lower end Zoomax models, you lock it into place and it's sort of there. Um, that's kind of disconcerting. We should point out that there are a lot of devices that don't ship with an XY table or that give you an option or that ship with something that's sort of a flat piece of a plastic so that you have something to put your material on, but you, 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 you have a choice whether you want an XY table and it's an add-on. And I, I like that because I've, I've never found, there, there are uses for an XY table, but it's never been something I've wanted to pay for, to be quite honest. But Related to that, just the sort of thing about style, I didn't notice that this, the conversation, I didn't see as, I didn't spend as much time talking to magnifier folks this year as I did last year. But I, when, when I was talking to them, especially those who specialize in education, they were emphasizing the style of their products because you don't want a blind kid who has that in the back of a classroom to feel ostracized because they have this big, ugly device. Mm -hmm. So style matters not only for you and how it feels to you and how it may look to you if you have vision enough to to compare it to something else, 
but you're really talking about making it easier for a kid, not only in terms of portability and function and setup, but for them to be in mainstream classrooms and to do so in a way where they don't feel awkward or uncomfortable because they're having to fool around with this big, ugly, glunky uh, magnifier. Sure. You want the Which Bradley watch of, of magnifiers. <laughs> right. That's funny because we, we saw so many head-mounted units. And several years ago, uh, when Google Glass first came on the market, you know, that would have been a point of authorization, you know, because, well, mm-hmm. Google Glass. But second of all, these units, you know, when they first came about with things like the Geordie from Enhanced Vision, you know, they were outliers. Now that they're kind of mainstream, everybody is trying to go for that uh, stylish look or lack of wires. Um, New Eyes is one that that comes to mind that Shelly interviewed, but I also held my hands for a few minutes until I put it back down because I thought it, they were too warm to the touch. Is, is the, This is a unit that is trying to have the battery in the glasses, the camera in the glasses, the monitor in the glasses, everything within the glasses. And it's neat that it's trying that, but then you're kind of stuck with the idea that it's you know kind of heavy, sits on the bridge of your nose, and gets really warm the longer you wear it. Mm. And that's kind of interesting that they're deciding to do that. They're going to get ahead of it. But there are several other manufacturers who are just not ready to jump into that miniaturization, as Shelley was noting. Yeah. I was, I was talking more about desktop and portable video magnifiers, the things, the fold-up units and the ones that come in a backpack and that sort of thing, just in terms of like... portable. Yeah, and the ones that have that are based on Android tablets and things like that. Sure. Um, but the, the 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 mention of the wearables though is interesting because they're at an earlier stage of development. I mean, you've got some wearables that are, are literally virtual reality headsets look like ski goggles if you've never seen one. And so they're not at the point where they can say, you know what? Style is important. They're like, look, <laughs> we, we have a product that does a new thing. We're going to yeah. find out if the market is interested in it. We're sourcing Samsung headsets that are designed for gamers and we're putting Android devices in them and we're turning them into magnification, we're not at the point of making them look pretty now. And so perhaps it's not the the best device for a 13-year-old teenager. And there might be several reasons why that's the case. But as far as like desktop magnifiers, you've got more brushed aluminum. You've got more, uh, like I say, cases that look more like backpacks and just nice. things that fold down. And, and wearables, it is, as somebody who's followed technology for a long time, the, the thing that's interesting to me about wearables is just how early days it is. Mm-hmm. And as I say, if it's not my $5,000, it's really fascinating to walk around and see these devices and, <laughs> and see how quickly they're evolving. But if I'm somebody who is in the market for one of those things, I, I don't know what you do at this point because it feels like it's so early. It feels like you have to pick a horse before mm-hmm. the horses are really big enough to ride. And that's that's funny because that's the way handhelds were initially. So when HumanWare came out with the pocket viewer, you had to pinch the sides of it to get the camera to come on. Oh my goodness. And, right? So that's how you turned it on. There was no on-off switch. You just kind of put pressure on it. Naturally, you had to like have a death grip on this thing to be able to read a, you know, a menu or something. And that changed over time. You know, the, the pocket viewer got smaller, it had a different iteration, it changed the color of its casing. So there were different things where the video magnifier was designed for the hand, but the camera was on one end. You either held it in portrait mode like you would now a phone camera, but for those people who wanted to read in a horizontal um, position, then the camera was off to the left or the right. And later that changed. They moved, They found a way to make the camera go into the middle so wherever the screen was, was where the camera was below it, 
And so therefore, wherever they placed the screen, that's where it was getting a direct view of the text. So just a quick story. There was a point at which video cameras started to have big LCD displays. And I actually bought one that was fairly inexpensive because for some reason I decided that it would be really a fun idea to go to exhibit halls and hold that thing up essentially as a handheld magnifier oh, trying wow. to work my way through the exhibit hall. And so had I been able to product that, productize that for accessibility, I, you know, I probably could have made a, a mint for about a year and a half until somebody else figured out how to miniaturize. Because that's essentially what that is. You've got a video camera with a big display and the camera in the center and you can zoom and it's got some more easily viewable controls. And oh, now it's got OCR. So, I mean, that goes back to that whole wow. business of, of commoditizing existing mainstream products and how that has accelerated so much beyond what it did, was even 10 years ago. So, let's move from sort of the, the hardware wearable end to the software end. And this can be uh, actual Windows or Apple-based or Android-based software versus the software that comes on some of these units, like what you were talking about with the OCR. So what what's new and exciting in that realm? <laughs> you did get to see the new Magdalene, didn't you? Or I can't remember. I did. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. Well, um, that's hardware. You're, that's, that's It's hardware, but didn't it connect to Chromebooks and MacBooks? And, and Yeah, actually, it, it did. I mean, if you, I guess we can take... And, and the Magnalink is one of those sort of mid-level, transportable, but more portable than trans, you know, not... Magnifiers that uh, is foldable basically, and it's a 13 inch unit. I actually have one wow. here because I'm going to be reviewing it for Access World, and I actually want you to talk about it, Joe, because you you were the one that was really excited about it, and I, I saw am. it. It is it is it does connect to it's it's connecting to Macs is like a big deal in Chromebooks as well, but uh, I, I think maybe you have a little more insight into it than I do. So why don't you go? MagnaLink is a part of Low Vision International, and uh, they have worked from a distance for a while and used American dealers, but they have started their own American uh, offices as of February. Uh, and I'm excited about that because I've used these units for a long time, and they use software, uh, to get to Janine's question, they use software on board PC laptops, and that is designed to work with Supernova and uh, ZoomText in order to provide split screen. So uh, if somebody wanted to tilt the camera, the camera is on an arm uh, and you could kind of tilt the camera to look at a chalkboard and then take notes in Word using ZoomText or Supernova at the same time. That's done by software. There has to be compatibility between video drivers and what the camera is using as well as the software magnification. And that's sometimes a delicate ba balance. Anytime you start to use anything like, let's say, Dragon Naturally Speaking with JSA or something like that, there's always the ability for you to break something on an upgrade. So uh, it's always a, a consideration that you have to consider if you're going to do a PC access type thing that revolves on software, that mm -hmm. you don't upgrade something and break everything at the same time. So there are some software considerations when you go for something like that. ZoomText has been really good about that in the past. Uh, there are ways to split ZoomText output so you can actually do the way I was speaking up. So you could have the uh, top half of the screen pointing and looking at the whiteboard and the bottom half of the screen with zoom text with all its features going. So X font and uh, change your, you know, color filtering options or have focus. And that's kind of really helpful for students on the go because while you may need still three Sherpas to carry it all with you because <laughs> you do have uh, a laptop 
uh, this Magnalink student, which isn't very light, it is kind of heavy, especially if you're using one of the weighted bases. And then you throw in your books and everything else you're going to carry with you. Uh, it does take a little bit of time. And that's something you also have to think about. If you're going to consider one of these units that is portable, and I'd use air quotes there, you have to think about how long it takes you to set one of these puppies up and how much space do you need. And if you're going to use a laptop, then you need space for that. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a modern day college lately, but those desks are very much like the ones you find at Baskin and Robbins. And yes. there's just not a lot of room. <laughs> and if you put your foot up on your, on your leg, you're, you're touching somebody's ear with your foot. Uh, so there's a lot of th- thought that has to go in, into this. And I think sometimes people can be very uh, much on the access side of, oh, I can, rather than, oh, how can I? Yeah. And, and that could be a big problem. Yeah. So, so since we're talking about split screen, that's a feature that Humanware has added to the Prodigy Connect 12. That is their Android tablet-based magnifier. It's, not, it's more than a magnifier. It's an Android tablet, but it has magnification for reading. And they've always had the option of adding a distance camera. Now the camera is integrated into the unit and it will do split screen, which I think is really groovy. So you have a mobile OS, plus you have script, split screen so that you can use it for distance viewing. So Interesting. that's pretty groovy. As far as other things in terms of software, it's worth pointing out, and I, I think some of us who do this all the time forget, but the last time there was a CSUN, there was no seeing AI. And seeing AI came out last <laughs> summer. And so for a lot of people, seeing AI was still the bee's knees. It is so hard to imagine that yeah. it hasn't even been out a year. It's amazing, and they're already at version 2.0. Yeah, and of course, Jason and I were beta testers, so we, we ah, had it, you know, this time last year. There you go. So you, so there was seeing AI, but not everybody knew about it. Yeah. But, but they're already at version 2.0. I talked to Microsoft people who were, were very interested in getting feedback about it. I, a lot of people have really integrated it into their lifestyle, into their workflow mm-hmm. to an astonishing degree. I know, Joe, you talked to them about soundscape, so there's just a lot going on with Microsoft right now. I also got to break the news to David Raystrick of Envision America that there was an Envision AI app. Uh, yes. Scanning <laughs> and uh, a lot of things that seeing AI does. And it's weird because in the case of the humanware conversation, they're kind of restricted by hardware. Because they're using an Android tablet, mm-hmm. they're stuck with whatever the chip does. And that's weird to consider too. If you're going to use an off-the-shelf product to help you bring accessibility to the market, did you make a mistake in choosing something that limits your potential? Dare we say Trekker Maestro? Well, but but look at it that way, mm-hmm. right? That changed over time. I mean, the, the original KNFB, yeah. you know, was a yep. camera and a phone. Uh, and took 35 pictures and you were done on either yeah. one of those. And both of those devices, though, paved the way. But what's tricky is that if you're humanware, even if you make a good choice, you go out and you find a really great piece of hardware, you work with them, you customize your software, obsolescence is going to get you no matter what. Because I reviewed that product when the Project 12 came out, and I think they were at, were they at Lollipop? I guess they were at Lollipop. And so now version 3.0 is at at Nougat, but that's different hardware. It Mm -hmm. probably wouldn't. I haven't. I didn't confirm this with them, but I, it probably wouldn't. The software couldn't be upgraded all the way up to the most current version of Android, and there's nothing humanware can do about that. But still, in all, uh, I've invested. If I had purchased it, uh, you know, 
$2,000. So that's still the problem with, with accessibility products. And that's why a lot of people, when they have options and when they may, especially in, the, in a low vision situation, they may say to themselves, well, why don't I just buy a standard issue tablet? I can use all the speech that's available to me in the operating system and in apps. And then, you know, jury rig my own reading stand if I need to or do something else. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be something that more high functioning people are going to be in a better position to do. But it, it's, it's got to be hard on these companies too, where they're selling these units and they know that there's a point at which if they're not obsolete, there's, the apps are going to start being less reliable because they're not able to upgrade to the latest version of, of Android or the camera has been left behind or something like that. And so it's, it's, it's a hard problem. And there's something to be said about standalone, right? It's one of the reasons why people used to consider a note taker over using, say, you know, a, a mobile phone with a keyboard connected to it via Bluetooth. Mm -hmm. was that there were fewer points of failure involved, but that's now coming to be not the truth with video magnifiers. I mean, to find a traditional Aladdin genie from Telesensory or something like that. Oh my. It's, you yeah, are reaching you know, way back. I was going to say, wow. And, 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 you know, and you know why I point that out? I point that one out because it had little sliders that you moved back and forth, right? You could easily just barely tweak the magnification. You could just this, nail, this. nail it a notch and it would zoom in just a little bit. A lot of these are digital controls. A lot of these at first didn't have very tactile controls. Mm -hmm. If you were moving something under your camera or you were focused on the screen uh, and you put your hand up on your on your monitor uh, to feel for controls, they all felt the same. That's not as much the case anymore. People are being aware of tactile for monitors, especially for blind trainers who have to train on low vision devices with people. And so there's more thought given into that now. And that's why it's important that we still support and recognize these vendors rather than relying too much on the mainstream because a mainstream product is going for all aspects of universal design. There's still something to be said about customized experiences for blind and low vision individuals. And I think that gets discounted at times. Right. And my husband, you hit Joe on one of my husband's pet peeves. He is a low vision person. He has central vision loss. So his vision is all over the place in little tiny spots on the periphery. He wants manual controls. He doesn't want autofocus. He wants that very fine tunable kind of experience. And is that available out there anymore? It is, but here's here's the problem. Not every vendor or dealer is going to carry all the current versions or models of video magnifier available, right? <laughs> you have to expend some research. And if you're in a rural area, that's very difficult. You know, that means you're going to have to go into a summer convention. You're going to have to make some time to go to a tech center and spend some ability to do that. Maybe there is a vendor that uh, is traveling to the area. You have to reach out to the company and find out who the local salesman is or local vendor is for that particular area. So it isn't unfathomable that you could do that, but it requires more effort on the person who is really interested in that because to get in a room, I mean, I was incredibly lucky that I worked at assistive technology unit in Austin where we had 48 different video magnifiers that wow. were currently shipping at one time. So I could walk up and do these side-by-side -side comparisons. See, and I'll, I'll just say something though. I, I was not a consumer of Division for Blind Services. I could have been. However, I didn't know that that existed. So if I had been in the market for a video magnifier. You never would have gotten her out of there. <laughs> well, that's true too. 
But the point I'm making is that if I see a tech product, I'm evaluating it. I'm always in that mode. I'm always thinking about, is it right for me? Isn't it right for me? There are many people with different levels of uh, not only visual acuity, but technology acuity. And yes. that really depends on trainers who are not trying to force them to choose a particular product because that's the most easily available or that's the one that they've been trained up on. And so you have all this great variety of products is available in, up, up to and including sort of, uh, you know, uh, of foreign vendors that, that come and sort of provide these commoditized products that may or may not be right. But choosing the right one and having the resources you need to choose the right one if you're not a super tech-savvy person is a, is a big challenge. And, and having the, the techs, having that center in Austin or going to NFB or going to other places where they have a row of technology available, that's, that's a rare opportunity, I think. And, and like I say, and, and even beyond that, having trainers that keep their own agendas out of it and try to listen to the client and say, hey, what? What do you need? What makes you comfortable? What kind of tactile controls? Or, you know, I like pinch to zoom, but I live on my iPhone all day long, right? So uh, what kind of tactile controls do I need? What level of interaction do I need in order to make my uh, OCR operate in a way that's, that's easy and intuitive for me? And, oh, well, and, and write the five most common tasks you're going to do, whether it be work or leisure, write the five things you want that thing to do and then have that armed with you so you can ask those questions or demonstrate that, you know, I really want it to be able to be able to let me write under it. A lot of handheld and portable video magnifiers are not designed or not comfortable to do that with for long writing tests. If you had to say work in a warehouse and fill out a ledger and still read things on high shelves, you would be hard pressed to look at video magnifiers uh, that would fit somewhere between four inches and seven inches because uh, higher than seven inches, you might get more screen real estate, but it'll be heavy and bulky and you might not be able to write under it. What kind of stand do they have? What kind of yeah. lighting do they have? Exactly. As, as, as Joe and I like to say, what color is the bezel? Correct. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And, and is the XY table a separate per, uh, you know, piece or is the writing stand? So in the portable uh, units, there are writing stands, but they, they're secondary purchases. Oh. We drifted back from software to hardware, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we sure did. But it's so easy to circle around with these things. And, sure. and I'm thinking, you know, I loved drawing under my little 10X. I love drawing under that thing. And, you know, just to think that would I still be able to do that? Well, certainly if I got, you know, just one of these little 10X magnifiers, but you know, would I be able to do that with any of these amazing ones? Now, I did draw under my Apollo, uh, and I did do some drawing under, I had a later, in fact, I had the Genie, I believe. Uh, oh, my see. goodness. <laughs> it's like the Ford Taurus of video magnifiers. Uh, and I think, was that possibly the first one that I had that did the reverse screen, uh, the white and black, which made, I was in heaven with that. Oh my God. That, that changed my life when I, I first got to see all the haloing though. Once I got well, that. Well, there is that. That's, <laughs> that's the thing because we have the thing that this, it's not so much current, it's more the past five years or so, but one of the features they talk about a lot with magnifiers, both the cameras and the screens is HD. Well, what does HD mean to you? And I always ask vendors this because I'm just curious yeah. in their perspective. What does HD mean to you or to your customers in terms of what they can do? And what you usually get way as well, HD screen means that HD screen or camera means that text is crisper. It's better. So, you know, it's better. But it, it's not. And then now almost all the screens are of that, you know, 1080p and that sort of thing. Sure. But 
those differentiators aren't necessarily, you know, p- people aren't necessarily even in the profession, in the community, prepared to, to give a good answer as to what it means. I mean, one of the things it's going to mean is if you're in reverse video, you're going to have less haloing. The sure. color is going to look smearing. better. The text won't smear if you move your text very Right. Heavy. If you want something other than black and white, like if yeah. you want blue on black or whatever permutation of color is best for you, you're going to have a better color experience. But you know, again, it's that sort of thing where you, you've got to have somebody that can sit down. It's, it's less important that the sort of numerical feature spec stuff mm-hmm. ends up being less important than sitting down and having some experience with it. And, and that's the value of if you can go to a conference like CSUN. So are you two seeing more people? Because Randy, you, you are still kind of in the game. You oh, yeah. were oh, yeah. called yeah. back to the office. Yeah. Are you running into more people, though, who are sort of in that in-between space? I mean, we know the folks who are maybe older and losing vision in a certain way. Then we have folks who have other, you know, congenital conditions. But mm-hmm. there are, are there a lot more people who are between that place where the, the enlarging the print and changing the colors isn't quite working anymore? How, how are the, the devices reaching out to that population versus the population going, oh, I guess I have to go to a screen reader and I can't use my mouse anymore? Well, for me, last year and then seeing it even in this year, I see a lot less blind folks that are being trained in on seeing more more low vision. And things are moving, uh, at least when I have seen them, more into the mainstream rather than your specific blindness products, except for magnification and things like that. So people are, are wanting other devices rather than, you know, they want more mainstream stuff rather than uh, something that looks weird. I have a final question, then I'll throw it over to, to Randy and, and uh, Jason if they have any, but have they yet managed through all of the low vision devices out there yet made something that will read numbers engraved in metal, like, um, oh, say your dishwasher's model number? <laughs> well, so there's, there's, there's a, two answers to that. So one of the things you can do is look at video magnifiers that allow you to turn the lights off. Mm-hmm. So you don't get that direct reflect off. Oh of yeah, them, right. So yep. you may use natural lighting, or you may use a flashlight, and you may angle it at some weird way, and uh, you know, so the light is sh- shining down at six. And o'clock. then change the colors. So, that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is we're back to seeing AI. Believe mm-hmm. it or not, uh, yep. that can really grab some things. Uh, there are very few things that I've run into, like maybe an L, uh, an old LCD thermostat with the gray background and the black letters. Oh, yes. Best it can throw it. But in a lot of cases, again, going in and turning off the light on seeing AI because it's on by default, but going mm. in and turning that off and trying to see if you can do that with a flashlight can cause things to work really well on short text. So there are two ways of being able to do that. And then, of course, the the tried and true, like Shelly was talking about earlier, dome magnifier or your handheld magnifier. Mm-hmm. I'd say the third thing would just be being able to capture it with a camera and then whether you actually edit your photo or whether you use some sort of color filter on your device, just having that video magnifier. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) That is what my dear spouse ended up doing with it. He took a picture of it, ended up exporting that picture to his computer and then was able to manipulate it there and actually read the number. But yeah, it was such a a process. That is absolutely (laughs) something I would do. And, and, And of course, then you're like, well, hey, not all video magnifiers have 
storage. Maybe you should get one that does. And I don't find, because there's probably people listening to their MP3 players right now or, or on the web saying, you know, what about apps on your cell phone? I find them hit or miss. And a lot of it, in the case of Android, you're, you're stuck with whatever your camera is iPhone's a little better because there are some, you know, specifics that happen on various models of iPhone, but sometimes your stability, sometimes uh, the external functions that you're used to with video magnifier, you don't necessarily emulate well in software. We're back again to a tailor-made experience. This is a video magnifier that's been designed for an eye condition. There are certain mm-hmm. vendors that go after diabetic retinopathy. or the I was going to ask you about eye conditions, actually. Did you see a lot of products that had a lot of flexibility for different eye conditions, or did you see a lot of niche kinds of things? Well, what's interesting is those that wearable space, if you talk to those people, the different kinds of wearables are more focused on different eye conditions, so some some specific and some mm-hmm. a, a range of them, like the new eyes and the eSight. Uh-huh. And and, the, and one of the, the headset-based ones that I saw, they say they have a, a software, what they call a clinical menu, where when they sell it to you, they can actually sort of tune it to your eye condition a little bit. I don't know how well that works, but I mm. think that's a cool idea. The thing about head mounts, going back to the old days of Geordi, and that really hasn't changed, is that it's a monocular ca- uh, camera projecting on two screens. So if you have two working eyes, you have to remember <laughs> that you have depth perception issues because you're getting the world through one camera. So you have issues with depth perception. So all of them will tell you this is not a mobility aid. Yeah. They don't want you walking around or driving uh, or doing silly things with that that might endanger your life. Also, when you go from light to dark, your eyes take a while to adjust, but these cameras can go snow blind. So if you go from a dark area to a white area, you can't see anything until the camera adjusts or even the camera and then your eyes adjust. So there are things that, that they will remind you that there are limitations to the technology of the camera. Somebody who goes to watch uh, a movie or, or television might find that the refresh rate of the media that they're watching can't keep up with the refresh rate of the uh, screens that they're viewing it through. So things could look like they're they're skipping frames or uh, whole segments of things, like if they were watching a football game. Oh, uh, that would drive me crazy. Did, right, so the guy magically went from the 20-yard line to yeah. the 50-yard line uh, because <laughs> oh. he can't draw fast enough. Again, we're back to what I was saying earlier about understanding the limitations of what this technology can do still. I think the thing about eye conditions, though, is it, if you're trying to decide, I mean, again, not everybody has the perfect opportunity to see every technology, but if you're trying to decide which of these very expensive head-mounted units to sort of give a look at, never mind buy, interrogating them about what eye conditions they are supposed to work with, and also, you know, going through an eye care professional, whether it's an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, and sort of speaking the language of eye condition it's probably a really good start because not everybody's going to do what I did and put six wearables on their head in one day. <laughs> and even if they did, I'm in a large fluorescent lit room where I'm trying to find specific things, usually signs in people's faces. And I don't know nearly as much about eye conditions as I would want to if I were recommending a specific device. But it's one of the questions that I asked everybody, like what kind of eye conditions and some some. Uh, of the devices would say, well, I'm, you know, we're communicating with the retina. We're bouncing the image off the retina. Well, if your retina is not working, that's probably not a good job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and if you have limited field vision, like, uh, yeah. you know, we were talking about central field vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these are, are projecting screens right where central field vision would be if you have it. If not, um, if your peripheral vision, some of these leave a lot of light open 
Uh, so you can look to the left or the right and not get motion sickness. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't realize that wearing a camera on your head can give you motion sickness if you're not accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and by the same token, all that light would probably make it not functional for me because it would let too much light in. And some of those cameras don't work yep. for me because my blink rate is so high. Exactly. But, and so, so again, like some of it is experiential. Some of it is put that on your head and see how it works. Mm-hmm. But starting with your eye condition as a point of discussion is not a bad way to approach these things. That is a very good tip for everybody out there. Randy, any, anything you want to add to this? Or I'm wondering as uh, people age, and I mean, you know, there's a whole lot of people like baby boomers growing older. I'm wondering where this is all going to lead just because they're going to have to make so much more stuff. I mean, I'm I'm certainly into you know, into learning all about the low vision stuff. And thank you so much, Joe Steinkamp. Remember, if you want to follow out more about this kind of technology, you can follow me over at twitter.com slash ranger station. All one word, that's twitter.com slash ranger station. If you want to hear this on a weekly basis, if you, if you didn't get enough of my voice and you occasionally want to hear Shelly when she's on, Come on over to blindbargains.com. And Miss Shelly Brisbane. So I can be found at tw- uh, on Twitter at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. I could talk about anything from uh, blindness and low vision to the news in Texas, to old movies, to cocktails, just, you know, it's a crapshoot. I also <laughs> have a little book called iOS Access for All, and you can find that at iOSaccessbook.com. I do some writing for Access World, and sometimes they let me on the Blind Bargains show as well. Well, thank you all for joining us on Main Menu. Main Menu is brought to you by the American Council of the Blind and ACB Radio. If you have suggestions, ideas, or a product review of your own, email us, mainmenu at acbradio.org. You can find us on Twitter at Main Menu. See you on the next show.